Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast, the podcast where I share true crime stories for your entertainment. But you might lose some sleep after listening to some stories. I'm your host, Larry Lease. And after reading about true crime stories, I condense all the content and bring valuable information to you. To stay up to date with all of our content, check out Twitter. Check us out on Twitter at TrueCrimeNS and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. This episode is sponsored by Pondex. You can check out Pondex.com and save 10% off your order when you use promo code Larry21. And also, we're sponsored by Audible. Audible is your home for thousands of audiobooks from all kinds of genres, from fiction to nonfiction, historical fiction, sci-fi, true crime. The list goes on. Check them out today for a free 30-day trial and free audiobook of your choice at audibletrial.com slash Larry21. Now let's get on to our main topic. In 1996, 15-year-old Eric Harris created a private website on America Online, AOL. It was initially to host levels Harris created for use in the first-person shooter video games Doom, Doom 2, as well as Quake. On the site, Harris began a blog and included details about Harris sneaking out of the house to cause mischief and vandalism, such as lighting fireworks with his friend Dylan Klebold. Harris worked at a fireworks stand and had received several fireworks as a result. The mascot of Columbine High School was the Rebels, and they called the sneaking out Rebel Missions. Harris and Klebold adopted the nicknames Reb and Vodka, respectively. 
Beginning in early 1997, the blog postings began to show the first signs of Harris's anger against society. By the end of the year, the site contained instructions on how to make explosives. Harris wrote, quote, The first troop pipe bombs created entirely from scratch by the rebels Reb and Vodka. Now our only problem is to find a place that will be ground zero. Harris's site attracted few visitors and caused no concern. Until August 1997, Harris ended a blog post detailing murderous fantasies with, quote, All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people like Brooks Brown, who was a classmate of his. Brown claims that Klebold gave him the web address in an attempt or in an effort to warn him of Harris's threats of violence against him. Others suggest that it was in fact discovered by Brooks' brother, Aaron Brown. After Brown's parents viewed the site, they contacted the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office on August 7th, 1997. When investigator Michael Guerrero accessed the website, he discovered numerous violent threats directed against the students and teachers of Columbine High School. The investigator wrote a draft affidavit requesting a search warrant of the Harris household. The affidavit also mentioned the discovery of an exploded pipe bomb and the suspicion of Harris being involved in the unsolved case. The affidavit was never submitted to a judge and therefore went ignored. On October 2, 1997, Harris and Klebold were suspended for hacking into Columbine High School's computer system to get student locker combinations. Can't believe they actually have that written down somewhere. Heck, I remember being in middle school and I had to memorize my locker combination. I don't even think it was assigned to me, too. On January 30th, 1998, Harris and Klebold were arrested for breaking into a white van parked near Littleton and stealing tools and computer equipment. They would subsequently attend a joint court hearing where they pled guilty to the felony theft. The judge sentenced them to a juvenile diversion program. As a result, both delinquents attended mandatory classes such as anger management and talked with diversion officers. They both were eventually released from diversion several weeks early because of positive actions in the program and put on probation. Nearly a year before the massacre, Klebold wrote a message in Harris's 1998 yearbook. Quote, killing enemies, blowing stuff up, killing cops, my wrath for January's incident will be godlike. Not to mention our revenge in the commons. The commons were slang for the school cafeteria. Harris and Klebold kept journals which were released to the public in 2006. In the journals, the pair would eventually document their arsenal and plan of attack. Shortly after the court hearing for the van break-in, Harris reverted his website back to just hosting user-created levels of doom. He began to write his thoughts down in a journal instead. In both of these journals, Harris and Klebold would later plot the attack. Soon after beginning his journal, Harris typed out one plan of attack, which included, after the massacre, possibly escaping to a foreign co- country or hijacking an aircraft at Denver International Airport and crashing it into New York City. Klebold had already been keeping a personal journal since March 1997. As early as November of that year, Klebold had mentioned going on a killing spree. Klebold had used his journal to vent about his personal problems as well as what he'd wear and use during the attack. Harris also made entries on topics such as his sexuality in his journal, where he described a desire for sex with women, especially his desire of raping and torturing them in his bedroom. Harris also expressed interest in cannibalism and stated that he'd like to dismember a woman with whom he could have sex. 
Harris and Klebold also used their schoolwork to foreshadow the massacre. They both displayed themes of violence in their creative writing projects in December 1997. Harris wrote a paper on school shootings titled Guns in School in a poem from the perspective of a bullet. Klebold wrote a short story about a man killing students, which worried his teachers so much that she alerted his parents. Both had also actively researched war and murder. For one project, Harris wrote a paper on the Nazis and Klebold wrote a paper on Charles Manson. In a psychology class, Harris wrote he dreamed of going on a shooting spree with Klebold. Harris's journals described several experimental bomb detonations. According to their journals and videotapes, it is believed by investigators that the pair intended to detonate their propane bombs in the cafeteria at the busiest lunch hour, killing hundreds of students. After this, they would shoot and stab survivors as well as lob bombs. Bombs set in their cars in the parking lot would also eventually detonate, killing more students as well as possibly any police officers, paramedics, firemen, or reporters who had come to the school. However, this failed to occur since the bombs in the cafeteria and cars failed to detonate. Several official sources claimed they planned to shoot the fleeing survivors from the parking lot, but moved to the staircase on the hill at the west side of the school when the bombs failed. Other sources claimed that the top of the staircase where the massacre began was their preferred spot to wait for the bombs to go off all along. A total of 188 rounds of ammunition were fired by the perpetrators during the massacre, firing nearly twice as much as Klebold. Harris fired his carbine rifle a total of 96 times and discharged his shotgun 25 times. Klebold fired his Tech 9 handgun 55 times and 12 rounds from his double-barreled shotgun. Law enforcement officers fired 141 rounds during exchanges of gunfire with the shooters. On Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, Harris and Klebold placed two duffel bags in the cafeteria. Each bag contained propane bombs set to detonate during the A-lunch shift, which began at 11.15 a.m. No witness recalled seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. The security staff at CHS did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian was replacing the school security videotape at around 11.14 a.m. Shortly after the massacre, police speculated the bombs were placed during this, quote, tape change. They also investigated whether the bombs were placed during the after-prom party held the prior weekend. Some internet sleuths claim the bomb placement can be seen on the surveillance video at around 10.58 a.m. Harris and Klebold are seen in the tapes planting the bombs in casual school clothes separately. Jeffco Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was assigned to the high school as a full-time school resource officer. Gardner usually ate lunch with students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the Smoker's Pit in Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of Columbine High School and two miles south of the fire station. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, causing a small fire, which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. It went off after first having been moved. Bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs and relayed to police at the school the possibility of devices with motion activators. Harris and Klebold changed clothes and returned separately to CHS. Harris parked his vehicle in the junior student parking lot 
Cleveland parked in the adjoining senior student parking lot. The school cafeteria was their primary bomb target. The cafeteria had a long outside window wall, ground level doors, and was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was co- located above the cafeteria in the second story of the window. Each car contained bombs. As Harris pulled into the parking lot, he encountered classmate Brooks Brown, with whom he had recently patched up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was smoking, he was surprised to see Harris, whom he earlier noted had been absent from a class test. Brown confronted Harris about missing the test. Harris seemed unconcerned, commenting, It doesn't matter anymore. Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. Brown, feeling uneasy and already prepared to skip his next class, walked away, walked away down South Pier Street. Meanwhile, Harris and Klebold armed themselves, using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath black trench coats. They lugged backpacks and duffel bags that were filled with pipe bombs and ammunition. Harris also had his shotgun in one of the bags. Beneath the, oh, <clears throat> excuse me. Beneath the trench coats, Harris wore a homemade bandolier and a white t-shirt that read Natural Selection in black letters. Claybold wore a black t-shirt that read Wrath in red letters. The cafeteria bombs failed to detonate. Had these bombs exploded with full power, they could have killed or severely wounded all of the 488 students in the cafeteria and possibly made the ceiling collapse by destroying the pillars holding it up, dropping the library into the cafeteria. At 11.19 a.m., 17-year-old Rachel Scott and her friend Richard Castaldo were having lunch and sitting on the grass next to the west entrance of the school. Cleveland threw a pipe bomb towards the parking lot. The bomb only partially detonated, causing it to give off smoke. Castaldo thought it was no more than a crude senior prank. Likewise, several students during the incident first thought that they were watching a prank. A witness reported hearing, Go, go, before Klebold and Harris pulled their guns from beneath their trench coats and began shooting. Scott was killed instantly when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Harris's carbine. One shot was to the left temple. Castaldo was shot eight times in the chest, arm, and abdomen. He fell unconscious to the ground and was left paralyzed below the chest. Harris aimed his carbine down the west staircase in the direction of three students. Sean Graves, Lance Kirkland, and Daniel Werbo. The students figured they were paintball guns and were about to walk up the staircase directly below the shooters. Harris fired, killing Daniel while injuring Graves and Kirkland. William David Sanders, a teacher and coach at the school, was in the cafeteria when he heard the gunfire and began warning students. The shooters turned and began firing west in the direction of five students, sitting on a grassy hillside adjacent to the steps and opposite the west entrance of the school. Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but ran and escaped. Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and legs, and fell to the ground, where he faked death. The other three escaped uninjured. Klebold walked down the steps towards the cafeteria. He came up to Lance Kirkland, who was already wounded and lying on the ground. Weakly calling for help, Klebold said, Sure, I'll help you. Then shot Kirkland in the face with his shotgun. Although gravely injured, Kirkland would survive. Graves, paralyzed beneath the waist, had crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria's west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed blood on his face and played dead. After shooting Kirkland, Klebold walked towards the cafeteria door. He then stepped over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembered Klebold saying, Sorry, dude. 
Klebold only briefly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people still inside. Officials speculated that Klebold went to check on the propane bombs. Harris was still on top of the stairs shooting, and severely wounded and partially paralyzed. 17-year-old Anne Marie, as she tried to flee. Klebold came out of the cafeteria and went back up the stairs to join Harris. They shot at students standing close to a soccer field, but did not hit anyone. They walked towards the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof. Only a few of these pipe bombs detonated. Witnesses heard one of them say, This is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Meanwhile, art teacher Penny Nielsen was inside the school. She had noticed the com commotion and walked towards the west entrance with student Brian Anderson. Nielsen had intended to walk outside to tell the students knock it off, thinking they were either filming a video or pulling a student prank. As Anderson opened the first set of double doors, the gunman shot out the windows, injuring him with flying glass. Nielsen was hit in the shoulder with shrapnel. Anderson and Nielsen ran back down the hall into the library. Nielsen alerted the students inside to the danger, telling them to get under the desks and keep silent. She dialed 911 and hid under the library's administrative counter. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries, then hid inside the magazine room adjacent to the library. At 11.22 a.m., a custodian called Deputy Neil Gardner, the assigned resource officer to Columbine on the school radio, requesting assistance in the senior parking lot. The only paved route took him around the school to the east and south on Pierce Street, where, at 11.23, he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed she had been struck by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot at 11.24 a.m., he heard another call on a school radio. Neil, there's a shooter in the school. Harris at the west entrance immediately turned and fired 10 shots from his carbine at Gardner, who was 60 yards away. As Harris reloaded his carbine, Gardner leaned over the top of the car and fired four rounds at Harris from his service pistol. Harris ducked back behind the building and Gardner momentarily believed that he had hit him. Harris then reemerged and fired at least four more rounds at Gardner before retreating into the building. No one was hit during the exchange of gunfire. Gardner reported on his police radio, quote, shots in the building. I need someone in the south lot with me. By this point, Harris had shot 47 times, Klebold just five. The shooters then entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the main north hallway, throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone they encountered. Klebold shot Stephanie Munson in the ankle, but she was able to walk out of the school. The pair then shot out the windows to the east entrance of the school. After proceeding through the hall several times and shooting toward and missing any students they saw, they went towards the west entrance and turned in a library hallway. Deputies Paul Smoker and Paul Magor, motorcycle patrolmen for the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, were riding a traffic ticket north of the school when the female down call came in at 11.23 a.m. Taking the shortest route, they drove their motorcycles over grass between the athletic fields and headed toward the west entrance. When they saw Deputy Scott Taborski, Rick Cyril, and Kevin Walker following them in their patrol car, they abandoned their motorcycles for the safety of the car. The six deputies had begun to rescue two wounded students near the hall, near the ball fields, excuse me, when another gunfight broke out at 11.26 a.m. as Harris returned to the double doors and again began shooting at Deputy Gardner, who returned fire. From the hilltop, Deputy Smoker fired three rounds from his pistol at Harris, who again retreated into the building. As before, no one was hit. Inside the school cafeteria, Dave Sanders and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Gallatin,
initially told students to get under the table, then successfully evacuated students up the staircase, leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner from the library hallway in the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. By now, two shooters were inside the main hallway. Sanders and another student went down at the end of the hallway where he gestured for students in the library to stay. They encountered Harris and Klebold who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and the student turned and ran in the opposite direction. Harris and Klebold shot at them both, with Harris hitting Sanders twice in the back and neck, hitting his teeth on exit, but missing the student. The latter ran into a science classroom and warned everyone to hide. Claybold walked over towards Sanders, who had collapsed, and tossed a pipe bomb, then returned to Harris up the library hallway. Sanders struggled towards the science area, and a teacher took him into a classroom where 30 students were located. Due to his knowledge of first aid, student Aaron Hansey was brought to the classroom from another teacher despite the unfolding commotion. With the assistance of a fellow student named Kevin Starkey and teacher Teresa Miller, Hansey administered first aid to Sanders for three hours, attempting to stem the blood loss using shirts from students in the room and showing him pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. Using a phone in the room, Miller and several students maintained contact with police outside the school. As the school or excuse me, as the shooting unfolded, pipe bombs were tossed in the hallways and down into the cafeteria. Patty Nielsen in the library called 911, telling her story and urging students in the library to take cover beneath desks. According to transcripts, her call was received by a 911 operator at 11.25 a.m. After leaving the library, Harris and Cleveland entered the science area where they caused a fire in an empty storage closet. It was extinguished by a teacher who had hidden in an adjacent room. The gunmen then proceeded toward the south hallway, where they shot into an empty science room. At 11.44 a.m., they were captured on the school security cameras as they re-entered the cafeteria. The recordings show Harris kneeling on the landing and firing a single shot towards one of the propane bombs left in the cafeteria. In an unsuccessful attempt to detonate it, as Klebold approached the propane bomb and examined it, Harris took a drink from one of the cups left behind. Klebold lit a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the propane bomb. About a minute later, the gallon of fuel attached, the bomb ignited, causing a fire that was extinguished by the fire sprinklers a few minutes later. They left the cafeteria at 11.46 a.m. After leaving the cafeteria, they returned to the main north and south hallways of the school and fired several shots in the walls and ceilings as students and teachers hid in rooms. They walked through the south hallway into the main office before returning to the north hallway. At 11.56, they returned to the cafeteria and briefly entered the school kitchen. They returned up to the staircase and into the south hallway at 12 p.m. They re-entered the library, which was empty of survivors, except for the unconscious Patrick Ireland and the injured Lisa. Once inside at 12.02, police were shot again through the library windows and returned fire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 12.05, all gunfire from the school had ceased. By 12.08, both gunmen had killed themselves. Harris sat down with his back to a bookshelf and fired a shotgun through the roof of his mouth. Klebold went down on his knees and shot himself in the left temple with his Tech-9. An article by the Rocky Mountain News stated that Petty Nielsen overheard them shout one, two, three, in unison just before a loud boom. 
Nielsen claimed that she had never spoken with either of the writers of the article. In 2002, the National Enquirer published two post-mortem photos of Harris and Klebold in the library. Klebold's gun was underneath his body, so unseen in the photo, leading to speculation that Harris shot Klebold before killing himself. However, some of Klebold's blood was on Harris's legs. Also, just before shooting himself, Klebold lit a Molotov cocktail on a nearby table, underneath which Patrick Ireland was laying, which caused the tabletop to momentarily catch fire. Underneath the scorched film of material was a piece of Harris's brain matter, suggest, suggesting Harris had shot himself by this point. By 12 p.m., SWAT teams were stationed outside the school and ambulances started taking the wounded to local hospitals. A call for additional ammunition for police officers in case of a shootout came at 12.20. Authorities reported pipe bombs by one, and two SWAT teams entered the school at 1.09, moving from classroom to classroom, discovering hidden students and faculty. They entered at the end of the school opposite the library, hampered by old maps and unaware a new wing had recently been added. They were also hampered by the sound of fire alarms. So now let us know in the comments section below your thoughts on this tragic mass shooting slash, I guess, act of terrorism, per se, in some form. And as always, if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, um, bring in new writers and hosts that we can pay, upgrade our equipment, and hopefully one day take this show on the road. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, Buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash true crime never sleeps. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.